Anybody have any idea um, what day it is today? This is the last Wednesday in our series, Walking Through Galatians, all semester. In fact, as I was looking at the calendar, it caught me off guard, and I was surprised. We actually only have one more chapel left before Christmas break, and that's when we always get a chance sort of to do a Christmas-themed um, and singing chapel. So this is, it kind of caught me off guard that it was already here. Um, your body is probably telling you right now that you're ready for a break, um, but I was surprised to see it this quickly coming on my calendar. In fact, last night, this hit home, I got to take a little break um, from work, and I put my Christmas lights up, and so for the first time, it really began to feel like the changing of the season. So what I want to do now today as we get to the very end of the book of Galatians is, where was Paul going in all of this? So let's do a little bit of a recap. Okay, so Judaizers, these people who were interested in pushing these new converts in the area of Galatia back towards following the Old Testament laws, including circumcision, um, have come in and infiltrated the church. And now Paul, throughout this letter, has been responding, and this is his angriest of all the letters, right? The angriest of all the epistles that Paul writes, and it's because why would you give up the Spirit? Why would you give up the greatest thing that Jesus was the most excited about after his departure that was going to come into your lives and change the way that you lived? And why would you settle for anything less than that? Last week, as we finished up in Galatians 5, this line kind of came at the very end of it, which is sort of where all of Galatians was heading. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's sort of like this thesis that comes at the end of the book of what it all was sort of pointing towards. But what hit me when I came across this verse was the opening word of it, since. Like, there's just, it's assumed. And it should be. Since we live by the Spirit. This is your reality. I need to be able to walk into every situation and assume three things. Number one, the Spirit is here. Number two, He's working. And number three, He wants more. The Spirit is here, He is working, and He wants more. And Paul's so upset in this about where they were at in terms of this infiltrating voice coming into the churches in Galatia because they wanted to push back sort of this rule-keeping, law-abiding pattern of making oneself right with God. And Paul's so upset about this because the law could only ever act as a restraint, as a row of fences that sort of said to evil, you only get to go this far. But if the law is a restraint, the spirit is an accelerant for beauty. You see, if I get a stop sign at the end of the road, it can tell, me my, it can tell my car to stop, but it can't, it's not telling me to be a better person. Laws restrain bad behavior, but they don't accelerate beauty and goodness and fruit. And this is why Paul's so upset, of course, right? If the law could only take you so far, and its vehicle was to designed to do that, and then it kind of falls apart. I had an engineer friend um, at Dort, and when they went on to work for a major automobile company, they told me that they were actually being told that they were designing products that were lasting too long. That what, had need, what they needed to have happen was for those parts to fall apart after seven years because there's a certain amount of profit that gets made on the breaking down of parts and the certain life that someone expects to have in a vehicle before they're willing to go out and spend more money and actually buy a new one. So they were being chastised, they told me, in their work because they were making products that were too good 
Because a car was only supposed to design to go so far, and then we need you to get a new one. The law was only designed to take us so far, and it was designed to take us to Jesus. And its day has come. And now, what we need is this life in the Spirit. This accelerant for beautiful living. And if we're going to walk in step with the Spirit, I want you to consider for a minute the notion of pace. We'll only ever grow, then, at the speed at which we trust the Holy Spirit to do His work. Right? If we're keeping in step with the Spirit, if He's setting the pace, I'm only ever going to be able to move with Him. I'm only ever going to be able to grow in my walk to the extent at which I am giving Him my trust. If I'm not doing that or letting Him have His way within me, then I'm going to experience a lot of stunting in my spiritual growth. See, the Holy Spirit has in mind where he wants to lead you. And now, after five chapters of imploring the Galatians to live into the reality of walking in step with the Spirit, comes the close of the entire thing in chapter 6, where Paul says, and this is what it's going to look like. This is what an outpouring of the Holy Spirit looks like. This is what revival inside your soul and amongst you will look like. And it's our text for today. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. I really like that verse. Let's take an offering. Oh, come on, keep up, people. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. And the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, and yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And neither circumcision nor uncircumcision actually means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. 
So what we see is this um, Paul imploring us as the book ends to get to this keep in step with the Spirit, walk with the Spirit. His fascination, um, his obsession with the road to a new life in Christ is being carried into by the Spirit. And then in chapter 6, it's actually utterly ordinary, the things that he talks about. That an outpouring of a spirit, a revival of the soul, the Holy Spirit come down and empowering God's people looks like people who fight less and maybe a whole lot better. It comes in the small things. And if we listen to Jesus in the Gospels, we shouldn't be surprised at all that Paul, who knew him so well, would end this letter in the same place. The one who talked about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God like mustard seeds. Or a lost coin. Or a lost sheep. Now I hope this actually sounds encouraging. It's not that God doesn't do the big and the grand and the glorious and signs and wonders. Yeah, he does. But more often than not, you and I live in the utter ordinary. And the beautiful thing is that the Spirit of God was designed to work there. In relationships with roommates, teammates and classmates and friends and family God's not only going to show up on the top of the mountain God's going to show up in every second of every day wanting to reclaim every last nanosecond of your existence for a fuller more beautiful life because according to the spirit the status quo is never good enough he's not done He's got more to do. And he starts talking up here about how we should um, engage people when we want to correct them, when they're veering from their path, when they're not walking in step with the Spirit, when they've gotten distracted, just like we all do from time to time, by something that's caught their eye, and they're wandering off the path, and they're veering a little bit. What are we supposed to do, and how are we supposed to do it? Think about how challenging this is in today's day and age, where it is absolutely anathema to tell another person what to do. So the wisdom of the Spirit here is going to come in real handy for all of us in a hyper-individualistic world and culture. And we've done this so poorly. So it's really important to come back and listen to how it is that we restore relationships. Someone is caught in a sin. You who live by the Spirit. See, if you're not going to start with the Spirit's ambition in restoring or helping or assisting anybody, please don't bother. We've seen enough people in the world try to do it without the spirit of the fruit of God. We've seen Christians try to do it, and it's really ungodly, and it's ugly, and it hurts the Christian witness. So here's a rule of thumb I want to put before you today. If you're more motivated by, I just needed to say that, than you are a heart that's actually broken for the other person that you're talking to, Please don't speak. It is not of God, and it is not of the Spirit. There is no reason or excuse to speak into someone else's situation until you are more motivated out of compassion for the error in which they are in than you are in orthodoxy itself. 
That is what our place of motivation has to be. So you have to ask yourself, am I more motivated? Is this just an I just need to get this off my chest moment? Or I just need to say this and then walk out because it's going to make me feel better? Or is my only motivation in engaging this person actually because I care about them and I love them? And I am motivated by God's love for them. Until we hit that point, we should not be intervening or we will do more damage than good. Tell me if you haven't seen that in the last couple years in our culture. You need to be driven in a life by the Spirit that's always other-directed. It's more interested in the other than it is in ourselves. You have a right to lay down your life. You have a right to deny yourself. And yet even in Christian circles, we've adopted a deeply cultural language about my individual rights. And we think that there's something inherently Christian about caring about and striving for positions of power or influence so that we can see a laid out. But Jesus never talked like that. Paul doesn't talk like that. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that that's where change comes from. Jesus leads off a conversation with discipleship about step one, deny yourself. See, unless you're willing to do that, you don't get to engage in the other parts or it'll be more damaging than it is helpful. Because sin always thinks about I before you, about me before we, and about us before them. Anytime our motivation is in the left side of that list, for whatever it is that we're going to do or say next, we need to check ourselves. There's too many people today who just go back and forth slinging mud at one another. And you might be a better mudslinger than somebody else, so you might win the fight, But here's the deal. You get in a mud fight with anybody and you will always walk away filthy even if you win. And how many of us have seen even role models in our own lives choose this battle and choose this strategy for fighting? Brothers and sisters, this is not of God. And this is not what the Holy Spirit is asking of his people. Because fruit and gifts are always other-directed. Always other directed. And think about it. This is the mark of all maturity. We've always known this. We enter into the world fully selfish. Right? We need things from other people. We need everybody else to minister to us. If you ever have a child, you will understand this first and foremost. You will have to give up sleep. Everything in your life will have to answer to their demands in the moment, whether they need to be held or fed, and there's nothing you can do about it because that's how we come into the world. But as we grow, we move not only to a place of not needing other people to the same extent, but hopefully we arrive at a place of maturity where we're actually contributing. We are the parent. We are the neighbor. We are the one loving other people. We are letting the Spirit set the pace in our lives that's leading our gaze to an other-directedness, where the decisions that we are making and the priorities of our homes and our careers are more driven about entering into the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and about other people than they are about ourselves. And spiritual maturity is the exact same thing. To be mature in this world is to move beyond interest in the self. It's why in the next little section here, Paul talks about carrying each other's burdens as a way of demonstrating that the Holy Spirit has come. Wait, what? 
Carrying each other's burdens fulfills the entire law. Carrying each other's burdens fulfills the Ten Commandments. Carrying each other's burdens and walking with each other through hard things and difficult seasons fulfills the 613 laws dictated in the Pentateuch. Carrying each other's burdens is the fulfillment of all of that? Yes. Jesus carried all of our burdens, and it was the fulfillment of the law. And then he invites us to carry other people's burdens and be an example of that. You guys, an other-directed life carries people's burdens. It enters into other people's pain, and it isn't just interested in insulating ourselves. So I got a question for you this morning. And I want you to listen. If you want to be moving into a path of ever-increasing maturity in your life, in your character, and in Christ, whose burdens are you carrying right now? Whose lives around you are you pouring into? Who's helping you fix your gaze off of your own stuff and onto the hurt and the rest of the world? Whose burdens are you carrying? Who around you is going through something really hard right now? And you should probably slow down just a little bit so you can enter into that with them and ask them, how, how are you doing? Can I just listen to you for a while? How can I lighten your load? How can I walk with you? What do you need right now? It ain't rocket science. It's spiritual living. See, Paul calls for some introspection before we do this. Everyone should test their own actions. What kind of test? This kind. I suggest you ask two questions. Is it about somebody else? Like, is it about them? And is it edifying? I was in a conversation with a young couple who was fighting um, consistently. We're not even fighting. Kind of like play fighting, but kind of fighting. And they got caught in this pattern going back and forth of like joking and teasing, but the other person wasn't really walking away ever feeling like encouraged by it. And I just asked them, like, when you do this, is it edifying? Did you ever walk away and be like, man, that was great. I just feel better about myself for that. Like, it's a really simple test. Just ask yourself, is it edifying? I mean, for Paul, this is the measure of all the outpouring of the gifts of the Spirit later on in the other letters, like in 1 Corinthians. You want to know what's most important? Paul's like, that's easy. Is it edifying? Does it lift other people up? Does it benefit other people? Are the things that I'm doing answering that test? And then there's this encouragement. And I hope you're encouraged by this too as the semester kind of gets to the part where you've got to pull a little deeper from your well and you're feeling maybe a little bit empty, not only in your schoolwork, but also in extending grace toward other people. Let us not become weary in doing good. For the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. But please don't hear this as one more piece of self-motivation for why we do good things. See, I think in the cultural ears, what we want to hear when we hear this passage is just keep doing good stuff because it'll all come around back to you in the end. 
You're actually just participating in one giant system of karma. Karma is not grace. Notice that it is not a first-person singular pronoun in this. We are all tied together. We are all responsible to love one another as ourselves. Even when Israel was in exile in Babylon, Jeremiah tells them in Jeremiah 29 that your fate is tied to the flourishing of the very people who now hold you captive. So seek the best interest of your neighbors and it'll go well for you. So this isn't a just put in the work now because it's all going to come back to you. That's not it. Paul is not appealing here to selfish motives. This isn't a formula and it's not about you. Whenever he's using pronouns in these sections, they're first person plural. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest of righteousness. I'm not doing good things so one day it'll turn around and bless me back. And I know there are plenty of preachers in the world who will tell you that and think that that's what motivates the human heart, but that's not it. We were made for the other. We were made to find our own happiness and our own fulfillment in a life laid down for the benefit of others. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, he says. There is no I in Jesus. There's no I in church. There's no I in us. There's no I in we. Our lot, our fate, and even to a great extent, our sanctification is tied together. Because the ability of everyone in this room to cultivate fruit together is dependent on everybody else in this room. To carry each other's burdens. To grow with one another in patience. To be good to one another. It's interesting, I was reading through Dr. Tony Merida's commentary um, on this passage, and he talked about how it's so weird that you go through Galatians, and Paul's all talking about this outpouring of the Spirit, and he said there was, he was in New York, and there was this woman who would come to a pastor in their church and asked him, when are we going to see the signs and the wonders? Like, you're talking about the Holy Spirit. Talk about the signs and the wonders. And the pastor replied back to the woman, you want to see signs and wonders? See that woman over there and her two sons? They were just evicted from their apartment. It would be a sign and a wonder if you would take them into your home for the next three months and help them land on their feet again. You know that woman that you fought with and haven't talked to in church in four years because you guys disagreed about Sunday school curriculum? It would be a sign and a wonder if you would go back and reconcile that relationship. You know those new Americans who moved in, those houses all around our church? It would be a sign and a wonder if we had all of them over for supper. You know that widow? The one that nobody really likes talking to because she always keeps talking on and on because she's so lonely, she doesn't have enough people around her. It would be a sign and a wonder if we would actually have enough patience to sit down and hear the depth of the hurt in her story. Does God perform miracles? Absolutely. Are there signs and wonders? Unequivocally. But often, and as Paul shows us here, when the Holy Spirit arrives in power, it's not just a few little moments that change, but it's every day that changes. 
Because God cares so deeply about the smallest and most intimate things in your life. He cares about the big stuff too. And that's a lot easier to see and often a lot showier. But that real movement towards spiritual maturity that Paul's calling us to, to not settle for anything less than, that usually comes in the small stuff. And you get to practice it already in the first hour walking out of here. It's a pretty quick application. And ask the band to come on up and lead us in song, and I'm going to pray with you guys right now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way within us. We want to see more of your gifts. We want to be aware of your presence. We want to walk in step with you. We want to keep pace with whatever it is that you want to be doing in our community and on this campus and in our hearts and in our families and in our rooms. And Lord, I just feel a prompt um, from you this morning to encourage our students, to encourage this campus. That we would all look inside of ourselves and ask where it is where your spirit wants to work right now where we're just not trusting you yet fully enough. So God, I ask that, that you would push those walls down. And we want to say, Holy Spirit, have your way within us. At any and every cost, because you only lead to flourishing. You only lead to life. You only know how to follow what the Father and the Son has already done beforehand. And so we say we trust you. We want to know you more fully. We want to know the intimacy of your voice in the deepest recesses of our soul. We want to know your gifts and your fruit poured out in our lives in ways like we've never yet seen. We want to move beyond ourselves and be captivated by your vision. Not our own. Holy Spirit, have your way in me, in us, at Dort, and beyond. Lord, we need it.